Well, good morning to all of you this morning. Um, it's good to be with you. Uh, last night, I couldn't talk at all. This morning, I can talk a little bit. So I promise to you today, I'm going to preach until my notes run out or until my voice does. So whichever comes first, that's, uh, that's when we'll stop this morning. Uh, as we turn our attention to the text, though, I want you to think about this question. What comes first in your life? What is most important? As Joel has already mentioned to you, this is the time of year in which we make uh, New Year's goals. We try to change our priorities, have more time with the family, maybe go on that vacation you've been waiting for, diet, exercise, whatever it is, uh, we all have priorities. And oftentimes changing those priorities is a lot of work. And as a pastor, I've seen firsthand that when tragedy strikes, when death is introduced into the equation, uh, we tend to clarify our thinking. We tend to actually find out what's really important and what should be uh, the focus of our lives. So this morning, what we're really asking is, what will satisfy our deepest desires? What do you think is that one thing that if you get it, it will lead to the good life? And in today's world, we are offered an infinite amount of answers from the really ridiculous, like, hey, if you get this product, your life's going to be so much better. This is particularly a problem for our youth and high schoolers. If you identify yourself with this type of clothing, man, you'll fit in with the in crowd and everything will be so much better in life. It's not the way it works. Sometimes we're given a little bit um, deeper answers like family and relationships. Nothing wrong with those things. Uh, but it doesn't take very long to be dealing with other people to realize that they're just as messed up as you are. They've got the same problems, and they're just as finite as you. Still others will look to fame, fortune, and power. And we know that even uh, the richest among us, oftentimes that family life is what suffers. They can't even talk to one another. Every year in Hollywood, someone famous dies or takes their own life, and we hear the same question, didn't they have everything? But maybe the everything that they had really wasn't that much at all. And as we think about that question, I'm going to give you the old pastor cliche that Jesus should be first. I know it's a cliche for me to say that as a pastor, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. It's kind of like the old joke we, we told in college that every uh, class you walked into, your professor thought their subject was the most important one, right? And then the homework would reflect that. And if you had four or five professors like that, your semester got really difficult really quickly. But the Bible doesn't mince words when it comes to the importance of Christ. And this is what we see in Colossians 1, verses 15 and 20. Really, I think this is the pinnacle passage about Jesus in the entire Bible. So again, I'm a little bummed that I don't have my top voice for this this morning. But in Colossians 1, we read that Christ is preeminent. You might think, okay, that's a big word. What does preeminent mean? Well, here's the definition. To be preeminent is to be first in order and importance, in glory to be preeminent means to surpass everything else. To say that Jesus is preeminent means that he is supreme 
over everything. This is why the Bible puts the title to him that he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the source and the destination. Everything comes from him and it's all coming back to him. So I think I'm on safe um, footing here when I tell you that Jesus should be first. So that brings us back to the issue of priorities. It's easy, even for pastors, to say that Jesus is first. And it's hard, even for pastors, to live that out. To keep that which should be preeminent as preeminent. Because we're all sinners, and it's far too easy to be distracted by what is immediate, temporal, and right in front of our faces. So my goal for you today is to try to give you a small glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ as it is described in this passage. Why? Because guilt is a terrible motivator when it comes to the spiritual life. If you try to join Joel on the journey of reading through the Bible through the year, motivated by guilt, and be like, man, I should really be a better Christian, you might make it to January 15th. But if you start to see the glory of who this Jesus is, that is a much better motivator for learning more about him. When you see how central he is to everything, that grows your love and affection for him. So in this passage, there are really two major areas in which Paul lays out the preeminence of Jesus. Two umbrellas that have points underneath each one. The first is his preeminence in creation, and then his preeminence in salvation. So we're going to cover those here this morning with our remaining time. So first, Christ's preeminence, him being first in creation. Paul starts this section by saying that Christ is first because he is the image of the invisible God. Many uh, scholars believe that these uh, five, five verses here are a rendition of an early Christian hymn or an early statement of faith that Christians would recite in church to one another. So what you have here is likely the early belief of the beginning of the church. And they start right where they should that Jesus is God. He is the image of the invisible God. Why do we need an image of the invisible God? Because he is invisible. He is spirit. No one has seen God, and yet Jesus comes to earth and he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know his character, if you want to know his heart, you look to the Gospels. You look to that man who was walking around doing all of those crazy things, saying all of those inflammatory things that got him killed, and you very quickly see who God is and who Jesus is. But when it says that Christ is the image of God, how is that different than man being made in the image of God? That's a legitimate question to ask. And really what it boils down to is that that term is used in two different ways. 
Right? We reflect God as humans because uh, we are moral agents. We have a will. We make choices just like God does. Jesus, though, is the image of God in quite a different way. While we mirror God in his abilities, Jesus is the second person of the triune God. He is God the Son in the flesh. So the author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 1.3. It says, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Or as we like to say, he's God in the flesh. If you want to know who God is, you must go to Jesus Christ. There is no other path because Christ is how God has chosen to reveal himself to his creation. And the mystery of mysteries here is he who created the universe joins it. He becomes one with it by becoming a man. The second thing under this umbrella is we read that Christ, first the image of the invisible God, second, he's the firstborn of all creation. And if we're not careful, we can take this in the wrong way as well, because I just told you that he's God, he's eternally God. Well, how can he be firstborn if he is eternally God, if he's always been in existence? What does this mean? Well, again, as we, we look to other parts of the Bible, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says this, as it continues on, there was not a single thing that was made that was not made through him. Put that into a little bit clearer context for you. Everything that had a beginning came into existence through Jesus, through the Word. So he can't have had a beginning because he would have to be there to be created through. Right? When John tells us that, he's making it very plain to us that Jesus has always been there. God the Son has always existed. So what does Paul mean here by saying that Christ is the firstborn of all creation? Well, in the ancient world, there were two main uses of the term firstborn. First, referring to birth order. Second, is a legal status. To be firstborn means to be the heir, the heir to the throne, to have the rights of inheritance to the kingdom. This is a very common usage. Uh, we see it referred to or used of David in Psalm 89, 27. It says this of David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The only problem is, is if you know David, he was the youngest. How does the youngest become the firstborn? Well, because he's now the heir to the throne. He is the heir to the kingdom. And really, when you stop to think about it, this is a reoccurring theme in the history of Israel. Isaac was not the firstborn, but he was chosen over Ishmael. Jacob was not the firstborn, but he was chosen over Esau. Joseph was not the firstborn, but he was chosen over all of his brothers, and his brothers hated him for it. God picks the firstborn legally, not by birth order, but by his own will and design. And that is how Paul is using this term. Jesus is the firstborn of creation, means that all of creation belongs to him. It is his by right, and he is the heir to the throne over creation. This means the goal 
of everything, of mountains, meadows, lions, sharks, asteroids, galaxies, you and me, the goal of it all is him, not us. This is tied closely to that third truth about Jesus and creation. We are told, quite plainly, that he is the creator. We read this, that by him all things were created, both visible and invisible, things in heaven and the things of earth, rulers, thrones, and dominions. Jesus Christ made all of them, and all of them exist because he willed them to be. So after this service, you'll probably sit down and you'll eat some food. And you should recognize when you pray before that food that all of it exists because Jesus created it. The rulers of this world, both the visible and the invisible, the kings, the presidents, the congresses, the prime ministers, the demons, they all exist because Jesus created them. Everything that breathes owes their life to him. And everything that doesn't breathe owes its existence to him. From the tiniest single-celled organism to the dinosaurs who used to roam this world, they all existed because Jesus created them. But here's the thing. He didn't just create them and then take his hands off and become this absentee God. We read in verse 17 that in him all things hold together. So it's not just that God or Christ created everything. He is intimately involved in keeping it all together and keeping it all functioning. He is upholding your breathing and your heartbeat as we speak. He's barely upholding my voice. An average human has 37.2 trillion cells in your body, and he upholds each one and determines when it will cease to be a cell. He is first in rank and power because he made all of it, he owns all of it, and he keeps it all running. And again, that's not even the craziest part of it when you start to work this out through the Bible. The one who created everything and upholds everything not only joined this creation, but then he willingly died for it. Think about that. When Christ was expiring upon the cross, the sky went dark and the ground shook because creation was recognizing that its creator was dying. It gets even crazier. Jesus upheld the existence of the nails as they were pounded into his flesh. He upheld the heartbeat of those who condemned him to death. He upheld the breath of those who mocked him and the muscles of the soldiers who nailed him to the cross. And he did all of that willingly because he came to save what he made, what he owns, and what he will inherit. And the final thing under the creation umbrella is Christ is the purpose of creation. I've kind of already beat around the bush on this some, but in verse 16 we read that everything was created for him. Not only did he make it, not only does he uphold it, 
but the purpose of it all is him. What is the purpose of life in general? It's not the byproduct of infinite time and chance. It has a purpose because Christ made it for himself. You exist for him, I exist for him, and even unlovable things like the Green Bay Packers exist for him. There was a New York Times article the other day about this group of women in California, because you know it's always California, who gather together to drink tea. I've had a lot of tea in the last 24 hours myself. To find purpose. And their way of finding purpose is by drinking tea and then emptying their minds in meditation to become with one with nature. And apparently drinking dead leaves is supposed to help you uh, become one with nature. There's a whole school of thought in this and training you can go through for this. It's a tale as old as time. We are hardwired to look for that meaning and that purpose to life. But the problem is, is we often look to silly things and they just don't work. In our day, we've seen the rise of these types of Eastern religions and mysticism because we've turned inward. Right? Meaning and purpose is found inward, and that aligns perfectly with Buddhism and Hinduism and other Eastern religions. You turn inward to find who you are. But the problem is, it doesn't really work. The problem is, is that if meaning is found inward inside of you, you die. It comes to an end rather quickly. We used to understand this fundamental reality that truth was external and I was to conform my life to that truth. Now we say truth is internal and the external world needs to conform to my vision of truth. And we see that worked out in an infinite amount of ways, but the problem is I can claim I'm a bird as many times as I want, but if I jump off a cliff, gravity's still there and I'm gonna die. God has created the world and he keeps it running as he sees fit. The great equalizer is the grave. All of those puny idols that we seek cease at the grave. Death haunts us. It robs us of our joy and our peace and our meaning. But the same is not true of Jesus, of God the Son. He is preeminent in it all. And he overthrows death by dying. And he is resurrected. And in that, he defeats that very thing that robs life of its joy. In him, it's all being remade. So he is preeminent, first and foremost, in all of it. That leads us to our second big umbrella. Christ is preeminent in salvation. Preeminent in creation, now he's preeminent in salvation. So not just the origin, but also the destination. So we've got four ways here as well. Paul starts this section by saying, Christ is the head of a new people. He's the head of the church. And he's the head of the body of the church in verse 18. And what we pick up on in this section is this idea of a new creation. Christ was there when he created the universe. Christ is there starting 
that new creation, that renewing of everything. And the church is at the start of this section for a reason. One of the primary purposes Christ came was to die to establish his church, his people. He is our head. That means he's the source of the church and he's the authority over the church. Riverview Baptist exists to do the will of God, to be his body here on earth, to represent him in how we live and think and feel and preach and do community groups and do Sunday schools. All of that is meant to be a reflection of this preeminent one. It also means that as his body, as his church, we are accountable to him. And one day we get to stand before our head and he gets to ask us, well, how'd you do? He's not asking for perfection, but he's asking for the heart of wanting and desiring to recognize the preeminence of Jesus over and against everything else. So to put it another way, if there's a church out there who refuses to acknowledge that Christ is first and that we should follow him no matter what, then it's not really a Christian church anymore. If you deny the preeminence of Jesus, you deny the very reason why the church exists in the first place. Second, we see Christ as the firstborn of the new creation. Here's that new creation theme again. It says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul gives you the purpose right there. Why? That in everything you might see that this Jesus is first and foremost. He's not just the source of the creation. He's the source of the new creation. He's the firstborn of the dead. Why is he the firstborn of the dead? Because he rose from the dead. And that resurrection is the beginning of the new creation. Paul calls it, in 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits of the dead. That is, the great Christian hope is that we look forward to Jesus Christ coming back one day and he raises everyone from the dead, believers and unbelievers alike. Some go to everlasting life and some go to everlasting death. But the point here is that in the resurrection, that new creation breaks into the old creation. It starts making headway. And that as the church preaches and proclaims the gospel, as people repent and believe, as parents are turned to their children and children towards their parents and marriages are healed and broken things are fixed, you see glimpses of this new creation coming in again and again and again. And you see that entropy that frustrates life losing over and over again all because Christ rose from the dead. He is the sign and the seal that death's days are numbered. And he has put a date on the calendar in which death will be no more and everlasting life will be the new reality. Third, Christ is first in salvation because he is God. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So he points out to you in both sections that Jesus is God. In other words, he's kind of saying this is kind of important. Right? You need to get this. 
right? He's God in creation, and oh yeah, he's God here in salvation. The fullness of God dwells in him. Why? Why does he have to be God for us to be saved? It's because of that familiar refrain that happens over and over again in the Old Testament. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord is my salvation. Those things are repeated again and again to teach us that if mankind was ever to be saved, God had to act first. He had to do something. It was mankind who rebelled. It was mankind who is enslaved to sin. And it is only by God doing something that any of that will ever change. Salvation must come from God. And here's the catch, as we've talked about over our Christmas series. Salvation also had to come from man. To die in our place, he had to be one of us. To bear the weight of sin, he had to be one of us. The truth of the matter is, is God, in his divinity, can't do some things. One of those things he can't do is die. So God the Son adds to himself a human nature for the very purpose that he might die for us. The specifics of our plight, that the wages of our sin is death, necessitate that there be a God-man to come and save us. And that's exactly who we find in the pages of the New Testament. So the fullness of God dwells in Christ. He is preeminent because he is God. The Lord Jesus is our salvation. Fourth, Christ is preeminent in salvation because his work brings forgiveness of sins. Through him we read in verse 20 that all things are being reconciled to God. That is, they're being forgiven. Reconciliation means, or only happens when two parties are estranged from one another. And there's always something standing between the two parties, keeping them away from one another. And there was a lot standing between uh, God and man. But we can't forget this fundamental thing. Though the cause was our sin, the primary thing that had to be overcome was the holiness of God. It was God who removed man from his presence in the Garden of Eden. It was he who told them to get out because of their sin. So we have to understand this big picture here is that wall that was standing between God and man. It is God himself in the work of Jesus who tears down that wall to reunite God with his people. And then he offers the benefits of that work as a free gift to anyone and to everyone who would believe. To anyone and everyone who would look upon their own sin and say, yeah, that's a problem. I can't fix it myself. I need this preeminent, first surpassing Jesus Christ. Because in him and by his work, all things, that is all types of things, are being set right. God created everything. He's redeeming everything. And he doesn't 
lose. God always wins. And how does all of this come to pass? That little phrase there in verse 20, by the blood of his cross. At the center of the preeminent one is his death. At the center of the preeminent one is the blood of the cross. The wisdom of God is put on display that Christ conquers by being conquered, by giving his life as a ransom for many. To put it another way, the incarnation, God becoming man, inevitably leads to the cross, God dying for man, and that inevitably leads to the new creation. So that Christ is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the source, the purpose, and the destination. So what? Why spend so much time on a rainy December morning building your intellectual understanding of who this Jesus is? Many reasons. Knowledge is important. What you believe to be true will inevitably shape how you live. The church has always placed a premium on teaching and preaching because by it we might come to know our Savior better. But let me give you a few applications. Paul tells us why this is so important if you flip the page over to Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 6 through 10 says this. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus in the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy in empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Why does Paul lay out for us who this Jesus is? Because if you believe in him, you are in the preeminent one. All that glory and wonder contained in those five verses, you're a part of it if you have joined him by faith. And it is by knowing that type of Jesus, Paul says, that you will be kept from being deceived by the lies of this world. Because there are many of them. There always have been and there always will be. How do you stay firm in the faith? By knowing this Jesus. When Paul talks about uh, worldly philosophy here, he's not just talking about philosophy 101 in college. It's not just Kant and Descartes and Nietzsche and Freud. It's the everyday stuff that we deal with. The materialism that rips at the heart of Christmas every year. It's the selfishness that manifests itself in many ways. It's this idea that all of life is about me. When, first, or when Colossians 1 is telling you, no, it's not. It's about someone who's a whole lot greater than you are. When the relativism of our day pushes us to want to compromise with what the Bible clearly teaches. 
It is by looking upon who Jesus is and trusting his strength that keeps his people faithful. It's not anything inerrant or inherent to themselves. It's someone greater than they are. So the encouragement is to keep this Jesus preeminent, to keep him first and central to everything. That doesn't mean that every thought you have, it has to be Jesus at first. It means that you come to look at life and live life in such a way as you recognize that that's true. He made everything, he upholds everything, and he's redeeming it. So I'll give you two, two practical examples here of two areas in which people often look for money, or sorry, meaning and purpose, spoiler alert, um, in life. These things aren't inherently bad, but when they replace Jesus, it's an idol. And the first is money. You need money to live. It's not wrong for you to make good money at your job. But money should never become the measure of who you are. Your career should never come to define and consume your life. They say one of the problems with millennials is they come to the idea of work is that it has to fulfill them. The problem is, is for those of us, uh, or even those older than myself who've worked their whole life, you realize when you get to that retirement age that it didn't really work. Work is important. Money is important, but it's not preeminent. Jesus should be preeminent in your life, not your money. This may mean that you give more. It may mean you spend less. It may mean you don't take that promotion because it's going to cost you something more important, like time with your family or serving the Lord. God gives us money so that we might testify to the world that it doesn't rule us, that we belong to Jesus and we submit to him. You make good money, great. You shouldn't feel guilty about it. Just don't let it be preeminent. Second, sex. The idol of our age is sex. We are told over and over again that we can't tell other people how to live sexually. But the problem is, God created everything, which he did. That means he also created sex. And he gave it to man to be a blessing to be enjoyable, to be a gift, but like all good things, if we abuse it, it becomes destructive. So Christians are to recognize the preeminence of Christ in how they live their lives sexually. This means you follow the teachings of Scripture. It shouldn't be an embarrassing thing to talk about. Christians should be able to talk about this. God gave it to you to be a blessing But it is only a good gift when it is expressed between one man and one woman for life within the covenant of marriage. I just, I read a a study last night. Um, The New York Times tweeted it out and everyone got really mad at them because it found that conservative, uh, religious conservative women are the most satisfied in their marriages and in their sex life. How could that be? It's so oppressive. Because God made it. And when you live according to his standards, you find the greatest blessing. If you make sex to be the goal and fulfillment of your life, it will never satisfy you. And it will slowly but surely eat you alive. 
the whole call of the gospel can be summed up in this. Life isn't about you. Lose your life and you will gain it if you turn to Jesus Christ. And that's where Colossians 1, I think, is so helpful. Because as great as you may think you are, he's far greater. All those great plans you have for yourself, his are better. He is the basis and surety of our hope. That Christian hope isn't found in that one day we think things might be better, but it's found in a person who is surpassing everything else, who created everything, who sustains everything, and who is redeeming everything. I think David Wells puts this best in his book, Above All Earthly Powers, when he says this. He says, Christian hope is not about wishing that things will get better, that somehow emptiness will go away, meaning will return, and life will be stripped of its uncertainties, its psychological aches and anxieties, nor does it have anything to do with techniques for improving fallen human life, be those therapeutic or even religious. Hope, instead, has to do, biblically speaking, with the knowledge that the age to come, that is, the new creation, is already penetrating this age. That the sin, death, and meaninglessness of the one is being transformed by the righteousness, life, and meaning of the other. That what has been emptied out of life, what has scarred and blackened it, is being displaced by what is rejuvenating and transforming it. More than that, hope is hope because it knows it has become a part of a realm, a kingdom which endures, where evil is doomed and will be banished. And that what has been, when that it has left behind in it the age of this world as a sinking ship. That's the Christian hope, all because of Jesus Christ. Because he is first and last, the Alpha and the Omega. So my encouragement to you as you enter into the new year is get to know this Jesus. If you don't know him, get to know him. If you know him, get to know him a little better. He is infinite in all of his glory and splendor. So you can't exhaust knowing him in this life. There's always more you can find out. He created us, he sustains us, and it is he who is our purpose. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the preeminent one, the beginning and the end. You have made us for yourself, and we praise you for that this morning. Lord, we know that we will always be restless as long as we ignore who you are. So Lord, I ask for those here this morning who may not know you or who only know you in a superficial way, that you might haunt them with your truth. That the knowledge of who you are might soften their hearts and that they might find that surpassing glory that is only found in God the Son. Lord, and for us as a church, may you turn our eyes and our hearts constantly to your glory, that as our head, that you might sustain us and direct us, and that, Lord, we might have the faith to humbly follow you and your word. 
It's in the name of Jesus Christ, the name above all names that we pray. Amen.